we are ultimately measured um, at, our, at a business level by the actual returns. We're not measured by press releases. We're not measured by amounts of money raised. The net net is what did you ship back to the investors? Hi there, welcome back to All In Business, your weekly business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. This week we're talking about the investor mindset. What are the ABCs of good VC? How to tell a winner from a loser and why real life investing is a lot different to Dragon's Den. I'll be talking to Axe John O'Sullivan and Investor Brian Caulfield about that in just a minute. Then after that, our Trailblazer interview is with a woman whose video on demand company has worked with everyone from Virgin Media to MTV to ensure we, the viewers, get an interactive service on demand. Her aha moment came 10 years ago while watching Family Guy on her phone. Now she employs 30 people in six different countries. It's Axonista CEO Claire McHugh. Now, before all that, don't forget to hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast or YouTube. We are, of course, on LinkedIn and Twitter, too, where our hashtag is all in business. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So the word expert tends to get thrown around a lot, especially when it comes to investing. But if these two gentlemen aren't experts on investing, I really don't know who is. John, your company has overseen 70 exits to date and raised half a billion. And Brian, the last two companies you invested in have sold for also half a billion. So we're talking big stakes and big money here. Can't think of any two better people to ask about the investor mindset. And let's start with what is it? Does it exist? And if so, what does it encompass? Do you want to start with? Or I'll let Brian go first. So, so I think the first thing I'd say about that is that there's actually a number of different investor mindsets. You know, uh, uh, if you think of it in very simple terms, you know, angels may think one way about an investment. VCs will think a different way and private equity investors a different way again. So just to give you a very simple example, private equity investors are very focused on uh, effectively, if you like, using financial engineering to juice the returns on a deal. That drives a behavior that means they typically want to have control of the business so that they can use the business's cash flows to pay down debt. A VC, on the other hand, tends to be completely focused on the growth of the business. That's how we generate returns through through the growth of the businesses that we invest in. That tends to mean much less of a focus on control, much more of a focus on how can we help this business grow quickly. And it's probably then the further accentuated, you know, Brian's put the different categories in, is the risk profile that goes with that. <clears throat> So while venture capital investors do, do their best for it not to happen, that's our jobs, but the underlying nature is we can lose all the money. Mm. Um, and uh, as a result, you know, we, okay, we build portfolios to try and shield our investors from that. But each one you invest in has the potential for huge gains, but actually to lose the money. So in terms of how to have an investor mindset, uh, unsurprisingly, I suppose, it sounds like there's no uh, clear-cut black and white answer, but are there any particular things um, that can serve you very well in that area? For example, whenever Mark Little is here and he's talking about, uh, just last week he was talking about the entrepreneurial mindset, um, he always talks about resilience and that if you don't have resilience, forget it. Would there be something, well, maybe, maybe the risk mindset or your attitude about risk, is that the most important thing for you, do you think? Um, certainly, when, so when, it, when 
when VCs work, they're working in teams is the first thing. So it isn't, uh, and they're very small teams, it's probably the proviso. It isn't, it isn't a cast of 20 in each, in most VC firms. It's a cast of you know, anywhere from three to seven decision makers. So it is, it is a kind of a team sport in that sense. But when you, when you go back and, you know, what, what makes the difference? So what, what, what are most, if you ask most VCs to, to rate one thing, and it's always interesting when you ask one thing. Now, you don't give them five things, mm -hmm. you ask them one thing that, that they are most concerned about or they think most about. It's really about markets. Okay. Uh, if, I, if I can use the word obsessed, uh, there are, when someone they meet an entrepreneur, it's what's behind that market opportunity. It's then you get to the people. Now, they're extricably linked, but if I, could, if I forced VCs to only choose, they would, I think I could survey... And I'd be pretty confident I get 80, 90% results that people would start with. They're, you're choosing markets and then you're choosing teams in those markets. Right. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. I mean, the first thing that a VC is always interested in is scale of market opportunity. Tell me about the big unsolved problem. And beyond that, what are you going to do differently that's going to enable you to win in that, uh, in, in that market? Um, I think the other thing, going back to your, your question, the, the, the biggest disconnect between investors and entrepreneurs is that from an investor perspective, they're always thinking about portfolio. They're comfortable taking risk in each individual investment because they're going to make 20 investments. Mm -hmm. Many of those will fail but the successes will outweigh the failures. So when an investor is looking at a company, they, they look at it as a portfolio asset mm. and they have an enormous choice of portfolio assets. You know, we, we probably look at kind of 3,000 investments a year in Draper Esprit and make you know, maybe 10 to 20 investments in total. So each investment is a portfolio asset. For the entrepreneur, on the other hand, uh, it's enormously personal. Mm -hmm. Frankly, the risk that they take is much, much bigger than the risk that the investors take because, you know, if you like, they're risking their entire career, capital, everything goes into this, into this one business. And that's the biggest disconnect, this disconnect between the hugely, hugely personal and the relatively impersonal portfolio mindset that a VC typically has. And you see that disconnect is a good thing because I suppose in one way it would serve you. If you're, as you just said, looking through 3,000 uh, 3, options a year and picking maybe well, 10, do you the, have to stay disconnected to not get too personally involved? Well, the way it works, it's, it's probably working a little bit into how it works. Mm. So, you know, so when you look at the way that the VC works as, as a business, so we raise funds, we create portfolios. But without creating portfolios, we couldn't take the individual risks. Mm. So they are deeply connected. Mm -hmm. So we, we couldn't say to our investors, we're going to raise money from you and we're only going to back bet in one company. They said, well, thanks very much. I can do that myself. Or actually, I don't. Actually, the more I hear about that, I'm definitely not doing that. Mm -hmm. So our, you know, the, the reason we, the VCs exist, is, there, is because we're building a portfolio. So now we can take those individual journeys with each entrepreneur. So they are connected. Yeah. The other, probably, when you get under the skin of it a little bit, each one is on. So there's a danger in... Entrepreneurs sometimes, by the way, come in with this idea because <laughs> they, they spend too much time studying VC and not their own business. So you, get a lot, you get a little bit of that hobby. 
Whereas they come in and, and they kind of assume because we're running a portfolio, we can be all be a little bit more relaxed. Mm. And somehow That's the portfolio so. will take care of, any, of everything. The portfolio effect only works is because each one is done on the basis that we believe it can be the one. Mm. So each, each decision is made rightly or wrongly and we get lots of things wrong. Mm. That's the other big misnomer. We have, it's a failure rated based business model. Um, the portfolio theory takes care of the upside. But that disconnect is, is short-circuited by that. We're doing each one on the basis that it can be a needle mover in the fund. Mm. And at no point does that kind of decision-making permeate the, the VC team that sure, it'll kind of be all right because the portfolio effect will take care of it. That's an, that's an output of each one being attempted to be maximised, which, which, which is what connects the VC deeply to each one of the investments and, and puts people in sync as opposed to you're right to observe you could have this disconnect mm -hmm. that's how the disconnect is short short circuited sounds like a world with a lot more disappointment than the average person might think yeah i mean i think one of the things that i would often say to people who are asking me you know how do i get into vc or wouldn't it be great to be a vc as well you do understand that your job is to say no 99% of the time, you know? Hmm. And in, in many cases, you're saying no to people that you really like and yeah. find incredibly engaging. Um, and, you, you know, even businesses that you actually think are pretty good businesses, but just aren't a fit for one reason or another, you know. Mm. Um, and that's a, that's actually quite a hard thing to do, to be, you know, to be constantly saying no. You're also probably going to have, broadly speaking, 50% of the investments that you make that don't work out for one reason or another, you know, you'll either write them off completely or, you know, maybe you recover capital, but, mm. but that's not a, a good result. So, yeah, it's not, uh, as a friend of mine would say, it's not all shits and giggles. Yeah. And even if you recover some capital, I think a lot of people would crumble under the psychological burden of a 50% failure rate. Like, do you, have you seen that happen before, maybe with some colleagues or VCs? You, well, well, what you'll see is, um, and, and the more experienced VC teams watch out for it, is that you can very see, you can see clustering. So yeah. for certain reasons, you could see uh, members of the team uh, working on a lot of cases that actually at a particular point in time are either in trouble, not able to get out of trouble. And actually, anybody who spends too long in that zone it's not a great idea. So you see VC swap, te swap team members in and out every now and again. Right. Because you can't have team. Because what happens is it, it completely colours their view on new investments mm -hmm. over time. And particularly when you've got younger members of the team who come in thinking it's a go-go, yes-yes business, because that's the reason they joined VC, mm -hmm. it's getting them through that period when they're going to have their, those really difficult situations to get them onto the stage where they become mature, more mature investors. Uh, and that's a really critical period in a VC's career is how they handle that period. Because equally, you could have a few situations, you deploy some money, you get a load of uplifts because of the VC said yes, and you think it's all great. Well, actually, it mightn't be. You just met other people who said yes. Mm. And the, the, one is not a proxy for ultimate success. We are ultimately measured um, at, our, at a business level by the actual returns. We're not measured by press releases. We're mm. not measured by amounts of money raised. The net net is what did you ship back to the investors and was it in line with the risk you said you'd take? Do you think that the recent media portrayal of 
that the VC world generally has taken that side of things out of the mix and left just an awful lot of glamorization. Do you think maybe that's why young VCs are coming in with that go, 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 yes, yes, yes attitude? Well, the industry has gone on a massive expansion period at the same time. So the two things have kind of crossed over. The industry itself must be, I mean, Brian has been in as, uh, as long as I have uh, and, and from different perspectives. It must be two, three times what it was, I would say, 10, 15 years ago. And it's accelerating. So you've got, the, you've got this inflow of talent into the industry and these scales of capital. Now, what you get then as a result is that the capital has to get deployed. So there is a bit of go-go that comes from that. But at the same time, you've had a media portrayal of a kind of an elegant simplicity around it all. That, you know, you're rock up, you've got a good story. Yeah. And there's some very good, there's, there's some very funny videos made by very respected US VC firms about how far that's gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are absolutely uh, curb your enthusiasm type good, the production values, because they've thought about this. Mm-hmm. And what they're trying to, dis- what you're trying to factor is this phenomena. Have, have we seen a massive shift in economy's ability to support entrepreneurial activity? And we are seeing big changes in that. And is the capital moving at the same time? The disconnect in the middle is the portrayal of it, mm. is that somehow people are just sitting there with revolvers and, and they're making a quick, quick, quick decisions and shooting bullets. Then it's what happens next is where it all falls apart. And that's never covered in the media. So I'll give you a, a kind of real-time example. I can't name the company because the, 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 the release is out yet. Sure. And they've just closed a very large one in our portfolio. Um, and Brian would have seen the same situation, so I won't name it. So they're just closing out on a $20 million US-led financing, which is classically what you want to see Irish companies do. That's the steps they want to go through, and they're exactly on schedule. So uh, we were working on it <laughs> over the weekend, and in fairness, I think the CEO's done an amazing job. And uh, I said, you know, I said, uh, well, you know, I can summarize how it's going with this. He said, in 48 hours' time, I hope to have $20 million in my bank account, which would be really good, because I can't pay the wages in 72 hours' time. Mm. Yeah. Now, that's never discussed on the outside, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, to be honest, the media portrayal of almost any profession tends to be wildly inaccurate, True. you know. And, uh, I mean, I was involved in a Twitter conversation recently about this phenomenon called Mur- Gal Murray um, amnesia, right? He was a famous uh, physicist. And he would sort of read something about physics in the newspaper, think to himself, this is a load of cobblers, turn the page, forget that, and think that the portrayal of medicine was very accurate, Mm. you you know? Um, So we all do that. But, you know, I think if you look at things like, um, you, you know, like Dragon's Den, I mean, the first thing is that it only shows part of the process. It, it shows the initial investment stage and does that very badly, right? It doesn't show the ongoing relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur. It doesn't show the kind of the trials and tribulations of growing a business along the way. It doesn't show the exit. So it's 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 entirely artificial. In, it's like showing uh, a first date as a reflection of a forty-year marriage kind, or something. It kind <laughs> of is. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's very. That's exactly right. It's 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 like first dates and kind of equating that to the yeah. to the duration of a relationship. You know. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 I would say it's generally unhelpful um, because it does create certain 
uh, kind of expectations um, in entrepreneurs as to what the process is, is going to be like. And there's also a huge information gap, a huge missing information problem. I mean, one of the, the, the things that you see all the time is that uh, a company receives an acquisition approach and everybody is going, oh, way to go. We're home and hosed. We're there. Um, what they don't realize is that a huge percentage of M&A approaches don't lead to a transaction. They fall apart for, for one reason or another. I mean, many years ago in one portfolio company that we had, we had three acquisition approaches that went way down the tracks and then fell apart. And not only uh, it, it, on top of that, Two of those approaches were from the same company. So the same company oh tried Repeat twice. Repeat heartbreakers. <laughs> Repeat heartbreakers, exactly. Mm. And of course, you never see those reported in the paper. Mm. So they're essentially invisible to people, you know. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why VCs do have value to add, because they have seen them yeah. and they have the experience of, of how these things can go horribly wrong. Yeah. And in terms of, um, you know, as you rightly said there, uh, a show like Dragon's Den shows the pitch, but nothing really beyond that. So much of the investor mindset obviously deals with the beyond that. That's the whole point. Um, when you get beyond the pitch, let's say you, you, you've taken somebody on and your relationship is just beginning. What's the most important part of the investor mindset then going forward? Because I'd imagine, I'd imagine you have to deal with some divas sometimes and... You know, maybe it's too late if you've taken them on and you know you've got X amount of years ahead of you. I, I, think, I, I think the first thing that you're focused on is building trust quickly, right? Because to, to me, the, the relationship that I want to have with a founder is that if something goes horribly wrong, I'm the first person they're going to call, right? Knowing that I'll say, Oh, no, but that then we'll move to the conversation about, OK, bad shit happens. What are we going to do? What? Yeah. Now what? Mm -hmm. um, and you only get to have that relationship if you've if you've built trust early on, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I think. That's that's what I'm thinking about in the early days. You know, how, how can I help this company? What what's the, the kind of the immediate value that I can potentially add? But also being direct and, you know, um, uh, you know, where I think things need to change or that th things could be, you know, thing, things could be done better. You know, having that conversation. Yeah. What about you, John? It's, 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 it's kind of like the, the way we describe it in the office, like the oscillation problem. The last thing you want to do is the VC getting to the same oscillation sink as the entrepreneur, because it's hard enough for them. So you're trying to acknowledge the highs, but keep them a little bit less high. Mm. And when something poor happens, well, not to, to accelerate the, the, the descent into the rabbit hole. Uh, and that's, but Brian's totally correct, that's to build the trusting. So, so they begin to understand that no matter what they say to you within limits, that actually, you know, you can react in a fairly measured way to the news. But 
because then, because what you want to ensure, uh, ensure on your side is the information flow is fairly transparent. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems very easy to say, but the entrepreneurs are quite concerned from the get-go that actually this is, this is my company and we want them to feel that way. But once you take in outside investors and out senior t outside senior team members, it's not quite actually your company anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, the, the phase of responsibility changes. So you're trying to preserve the kind of massive internalization energy that comes from this is my company and balance it out with, well, how are we getting the right inputs to what's going on around us? And have you ever had any really serious pushback to that or has it ever gone horribly wrong where someone's yeah, just uh, not getting it or not accepting it, I suppose? Well, there's, there's two types of pushback. The first, of all, the, the, the first is um, you want people to push back because um, yeah. it's, it's not like we have some incredible crystal ball that we have all the answers to all the questions. What we, what we have is adv advanced form of pattern recognition. To be fair, we, we have done this a while, Brian pointed out the value add earlier. It comes from the same process. We've built companies from zero to 30 or 40 million several times. We know that are all the same. And we're obsessed about market context. So we're very interested in how you do it in that particular context. So people can have different views on this. You've got to get to the best answer. And it, it's finding a way, and that Brian touched on about that pushback. Equally, they should push back on you. If they firmly believe that what you suggested is not the best way, well, actually, what you want them is to articulate the why of that. What you don't want it to break down, because you, and it's incumbent then on the VC, to articulate the why of what they've just said, as opposed to make it so. Mm. Because once you start issuing make it so commands, it's broken. Yeah, badly might, broken. Yeah, you, you might think it's okay because everything is running fine, but you haven't seen the problem emerge yet from everyone's gone binary. Because once it goes off, and it will go off the rails, mm -hmm. you don't have the underlying communication patterns in place for people to appreciate, well, what's been going on here? Uh, people have just been in, in, in sort of offering edicts to each other and ignoring, igno willfully ignoring them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And for a VC, that's amber, the amber light's gone on now. And, and you might not have seen us show up in the business, but you're constantly trying to bring that back into some kind of normal zone. So when you net out where it gets really difficult is you have a fundamental difference of view uh, about a, a major decision for the business. So let's not get bogged down in what are modest decisions, a major decision for the business. And that's actually what the VC will have been doing. Um, is first of all, you don't want those happening every week. No, you're, you've got a real issue. Is actually over, over building that trust that Brian described over a reasonably long, medium to long period of time, and this issue arises. Mm -hmm. And actually, what you really want is that the team that's been built around the entrepreneur actually is inputting to that to that problem, not just a single voice of the VC. Is actually what if we've been doing our jobs correctly, we've actually been building to this moment. So that isn't a huge moment, actually, nearly hardly seen, in that we've been encouraging the entrepreneur to hire some outstanding talent. We've been infusing the board with other voices. Mm -hmm. We've been looking outside for the right answers in the context and providing our own perspective. And when all that's melded together, when the big thing arrives, you'd hope that that group can figure it out. And you're trying to avoid that binary moment as much as you can. Now, it does happen every now and again. And the, and the reality is, is that's why you do see teams change over time. And everything you're talking about there, uh, do you think that plays out the same in the US market as the EU market? Or just as you mentioned, there being a difference between, you know, startup investor, angel investor, private equity, etc. Is there a big difference in the mindset between US and EU? I, I don't actually think that there's a big difference in the mindset. And I, I think this is one of the, the kind of the great fallacies. But there is a very significant difference in the market context, right? 
And that market context drives different behavior in many respects, you know. I mean, to give you a couple of uh, a couple of examples, I mean, the first thing is that the amount of capital available per head in the U.S. market is about six times what's available in the European market. I mean, the U.S. is literally awash with, with capital. And that uh, firstly means that U.S. investors tend not to worry about who's going to write the next check because there's just so much capital there that there's always somebody to write the next check. Um, they also tend to to be very happy to write bigger checks because they've got bigger funds and you know they're going to they're going to make 20 or 25 investments the same as the guys in Europe do but mm. they're going to do it from a fund that's that, that that that's very much larger so are you saying there'd be less risk aversion do you think that's so so i i think the i suppose the point i'm really making is that european investors face a different set of risks mm to the uh, risks that U.S. investors face. And as a result, they tend to manage against those risks in a slightly different way, right? They're slightly more concerned about a company running out of capital and therefore probably slightly more conservative in their approach to deployment of capital, you know? Um, so it's a, it's a it's a different context rather than a fundamentally different uh, different mindset. So for the entrepreneurs, you know, how does that net out? Um, you got to be very careful with generalizations here. You got to use a very small yeah. g. Yeah, they tend to they're te essentially running them at higher clock speeds. Um, <clears throat> it's not that the European ones aren't running at high clock speeds. But a lot of the US ones, you see this very high clock speed. And what they will do uh, is they will use capital to solve problems. If they still believe in the market opportunity, going back to that, they throw will, money at it. They, they will, well, they'll do more than that. They'll throw people at it. Mm. Now, for your average European entrepreneur, that's, that's, a, that's a new phenomenon that's introduced into the room. They will change the people in a heartbeat, provided they still yeah. believe the opportunity. They will add people around the entrepreneur. They will do everything they can. But if it isn't working and they still believe, because capital, it's not quite no objective. They have a low bar, lower bar to raising more capital. They will not let the people interfere with that belief. They will believe they can add other people. And their market environment has those people available to them. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bit impersonal, but... Um, for the providers of capital, if you can run at that clock speed and you have enough money, it, it, on average, and, and you know, they do it for a reason, mm -hmm. they know that when you play that role across the portfolio, across multiple funds over time, you get better outcomes. Okay. In yeah. Europe, if you the, here's the, the back to Brian's market context, if you attempted to do that in Europe, it's not clear you could even achieve it because you'd need a whole environment with a way to capital and you'd need bigger pools of people to choose from to then play that game. Uh, so European VCs would be more aggressive on that front. Mm. But, his, but because of those slight limitations, and those limitations are changing, they tend to work through these problems in a, in a, in a different way. Okay. I think for European companies, if you take capital from a tier one US investor, I do believe that that increases your chances of being huge. Yeah. You know, it also greatly increases your chances of being roadkill. 
Because if you're not performing to expectation or if the investor loses faith in the scale of the market opportunity, you know, it's uh, it's good night Vienna. They no longer care. And, you know, if they still believe in the market opportunity, as John said, they'll, they'll pile in more capital and replace the management team, you know. Um, but if they don't believe, they'll just draw a line through it and move so on. It's very much beware the double-edged sword is what I'm hearing. Yeah, about. yeah. I mean, that that's, it is a double-edged sword. It, I don't, it's not a bad thing, but it but is a double-edged fact. sword. Well, look, that is where we're going to leave it for this particular discussion. But don't go anywhere, you two, please, uh, because I will be back to you in just a few minutes with the one to watch. The who or what in Irish business has caught John and Brian's eye this week and why. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Telling better stories through technology. That's the mission of Dublin-based video tech company Axonista. Celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, CEO Claire McHugh is here to tell us about the highs, lows and key investments of a decade spent in video on demand. Claire, thanks so much for being with us. And first and foremost, happy 10th birthday to Axonista. Big year for you. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, we will be celebrating that this year. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Any plans stretch that for one out. Yeah. Not yet. We're, we're taking our time. Um, mm. But yeah, definitely a big celebration. Maybe stretch it out for the entire year. Fantastic. <laughs> and let's go back to the beginning in terms of what Axonista does, because you're a video tech company, but I find that that term can mean many different oh, things to many different people. What, what does it mean to you? So for us, what Axonista does, it enables media companies to build direct-to-consumer video apps on all of the different platforms that are out there, the devices that people watch video and TV today. Mm. So, and, and uniquely what it does is it enables them to have two-way viewer interactions as well. So if you're watching um, the video apps, you can shop, sign up to newsletters, find out a bit more context around what it is that you're watching mm. um, or anything like that. So uh, for example, some of our customers, they, they range widely. Um, QVC is a big customer of ours, is one of the biggest uh, shopping channels in the world. That's all about shopping. <laughs> and then we have like the IFI player, which is uh, all about this rich archive of Irish history dating back to the 1890s. So that's a bit more about finding out about that process and about history. So there's very different use cases for it, but our purpose is to give storytellers new tools to tell, help tell their stories, you know, in new ways. And that's that's because we love storytelling and we love storytellers, but the use cases are very broad. It sounds like there's an awful lot of variety then yeah. in what you work with um, and what you work on. What's been your favorite thing to work on so far or the biggest or the most unusual? What stands out to you in 10 years? Oh, in 10 years, like, yeah. I mean, the whole thing as a journey has been amazing and incredible. And it's a team effort from people who started the company with us straight through to to now, the people who are helping us scale it. You know, it's that's the, the exciting bit and all that you learn along the way. Um, the stuff I really like, I really love learning about leadership, being a better leader, Kind of improving, helping other people grow their leadership journeys as well. Um, that's that's the thing that I really love. Um, but also, you know, s- some of the cool stuff that we do with with the IFI is fantastic because they are literally saving stories from the basements of people's mm. houses that have been rotting away there for years and digitizing them and giving them new life and bringing them to a new audience. 
Um, we're also working with this amazing company in Amsterdam at the moment who are um, water using bears, our product. Yeah, mm. Water Bear Network. Yeah, They're tell us about that because obviously sustainability being it's, the, the word of the yeah. day for quite some time now. It's really about environmental mm. activism. So they are, the lady who founded it was working with NGOs for years and, and could see that they weren't really connected to the audience they needed to be connected with. And her kids were the audience they needed to be connected with. So this is very personal to her. Um, mm. And, you know, she wanted to give them a way where people could watch video about the NGOs and actually while watching it, while engaged, while they have their attention to, to actually engage with that NGO, say help out on that project, donate here, clean up this local beach, you know, something very active um, and uh, that would... Catch them in that moment too, I suppose, before... This is it, yeah, because their attention is gone somewhere away. else mm. five minutes later. Um, so yes. That's and that's quite a new project, isn't it? Was it 2018? I think I saw. Um, it's it's relatively new and mm. they, I mean, they have huge ambition for it. So it's rolling out. Uh, later this year. So we're very excited to work with those guys. But they all use the same product. So we, we are building the product. That's what the, the team in Dublin is doing. Mm. Um, and we are, you know, we're building onto it as, as, you, as you build a product roadmap out for, for, your, for it. You kind of see what are all the commonalities that all these companies have? What do they need? And how, that's how you scale it. Mm-hmm. And lots more scaling to do, hopefully in the next 10 years. But before we get to the next 10 yeah. years, Let's go back 10 years. Before all this, you were in Satanta Sports. Yeah. Uh, it's a far cry from, from that to what you do now. Tell us about your, your eureka moment where you realised that this is what you wanted to do. Well, Satanta was the first time that I worked in a media company and a media startup. And I worked with some amazing people who had learnt all about this and, and have been at the forefront of, of TV in Ireland since like the 60s and 70s, they, they, they were really experts in it. So I learned from the best people about the industry. I got interested in the industry that way. Um, and also I could see where it was going. And that, that for me is really exciting. It's like being part of an industry that's developing and changing and technology is helping it change for the better. Mm. Um, and then being able to shape the future of that. That's like incredibly exciting. So when I, we saw streaming coming online, like it was... 2010, where we just had touchscreen devices. I think the iPhone had just come out before that. Um, and we had streaming and it's like, okay, so that like you can touch video now, what's that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of the, the, the eureka moment for myself and Dara to go, this is going to be huge. This is a big thing. And this is a, a huge shift in the industry. We should do something about that. Um, it took a long time to pan out, like longer than we thought. Um, initially, we thought it would just like <laughs> Straight the away. business or the, or streaming, <laughs> streaming like yeah. the industry. So like you, you see an industry moving, you see um, big shifts in it, and when there's a lot of big players in that industry, it does change and it changes hugely. But it can take a long time. It can mm-hmm. take ten years to really sort of pan out. So um, so you have to kind of be patient with your vision as well. Yeah, that must have been difficult, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. None of this is easy. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's the bit we'll clip up. None of this is easy here, Jen, right, Claire. That's why we're here. Um, in terms of it not being easy, Claire, um, maybe it's a bit easier for people who have, um, I don't want to say swanned through, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, Ivy League schools and whatever else. And, you know, maybe they've come from Eton, made the right connections. But... You certainly took a non-traditional route um, for for someone in tech anyway. Um, I saw in your bio that you, you had spent some time in Ballyfermot Arts College Rock School. Yes. Please tell me more about that. Well, <laughs> my parents will agree with you. Um, my Well, I, I mean, I really, I'm quite creative as a person. I grew up in a very creative household. Mm. My mom 
um, as an artist and my dad dabbled in amateur theatre group and, and still does. So we were um, brought up in an environment where we were kind of reading lines at the weekend and helping you know, sitting for paintings. <laughs> it was just like, you know, there was always eclectic. something going on. It was yeah. eclectic, but but they were doing things where they were creating something that was art that hadn't existed before. And then they were making money from it. And that mm. for me, that was kind of like a thing. Um, so I, I was I was kind of artistic as a kid. So I wanted to get into that a bit more, but it was also quite musical. Um, and I was in a band with my friend and we decided to go to Bally Firm at Rock School together and we had a great crack. Mm. Um, it was really an amazing place. There was lots of energy there. It must have been the first or second year they were running the programme. I, I made great friends there, you know, um, and and got to sort of figure out that I wasn't the musician <laughs> I mm. uh, like to be. Or certainly it's a very hard slog. I mm. mean, whatever about building a tech company. I was going to say, any harder than... <laughs> I think so. And and not for me, you know, mm. not to the extent like I love playing and I love singing, but I, it's not something that I want to base my living from. Uh, hard to say, probably and presumably since, um, you know, since that is your background, it's probably hard to say. But I wonder, you know, do you feel that things would have been any easier for you or any, di- any different for you if you had had a more traditional, um, what is the word I'm looking for? You know, if you if you... Or making those degree. connections. I'd be thinking <laughs> of this now purely from a networking point of view, even because you know yeah. the way in Ireland, especially, it's very much who you know. And I haven't found it to be that much different in tech or in business. Mm. Do, you, do you think did that, you know, set you back at all, or were you able to bounce more into maybe you were more flexible? So when I when we started Axinista, mm. like the tech scene of Dublin isn't wasn't anything like it is now. Like it's completely changed and evolved. And I think so for the better, you know, we've had a lot of the foreign direct investment companies come in here um, and, you know, we've got Google, LinkedIn and, and, and they are participating in the community as well. Mm-hmm. But there's also the smaller companies that are also participating. And then there's people, um, there's good accelerators, there's uh, people running meetups about specific things. And there's employees from those companies sharing their their knowledge and sharing their expertise and there's a, there's a good vibe going on where people are really helpful mm. and you have entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and, and been successful come back and they will gladly share their experience. Like it's a really open, collaborative environment. When I started, I don't think there was any accelerators or pe- it was like you kind of, t- there was no scene. <laughs> so I like, am, yeah, I so yeah, it was just yeah. kind of like, and there is now, presumably. There is now, yeah. There is, and it's it's very healthy and vibrant and and wonderful. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of you mentioned employees there, and you know we're very lucky in Ireland that we have the talent, I suppose. But what about keeping the talent? As I know, you have some uh, interesting views on working remotely and 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 the future of work. Future work is changing. Um, there's a lot of sta- startups like looking at that issue and and you know thinking globally because in in Ireland you. It's certainly in Dublin, there's startups um, that are solving global problems, thinking globally and, and, and doing very ambitious things and having very ambitious visions. And part of that is like not being constrained by your borders and thinking a bit further and, and, and getting diverse opinions. And, and, you know, if your audience for your product is global, then the team that's building it should potentially be global as well and, and, and not just little tiny clones of yourself. Mm. Um, so... We have to think about that in a better way. We also have to think about things like maybe everyone doesn't have to come into the same office every day and sit beside each other. Maybe people can work from Galway or work from Cork or, you know, there's there's loads of places where people can work from. 
And if you're 30 staff, then how many would you say work remotely at this point? We are 50% distributed. Right. Which is huge for us. And it wasn't by design initially, but we've really leaned into it. Mm. Um, and some of it has been people who've lived here for a couple of years in Dublin and then gone home. And we've kept them because they're great members of the team and they're mm. brilliant at what they do. And, and we have, so every, every morning in Scrum, there's like this Brady bunch of Zoom call where you have all these different faces and you people with yeah. their babies and people with their cats. Yeah. And, you know, no, but it's like we do a lot of video calls. You have to mm. because you have to replicate that. You have to really lean into the fact that you're not in the same room. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to think about that first as well when we when we do anything together as a celebration like we get everyone together uh, at least once a year you know and we're hoping to do that this year somewhere sunnier than Dublin <laughs> yes. but it's um, look, yeah it, it, you know we you all really need a bit of that, that. <laughs> yes um but it's it's about leaning into it and mm -hmm. you know not looking at it as, as a problem but really saying okay this is a trend mm -hmm. how do we embrace this trend how do we lead speaking of leading mm. How often do you get the, so you're a female CEO thing? How big a thing is that for you? That, what, but How big is it in terms mm, of... Well, that uh, you're a CEO and that you're a female because uh, I just find sometimes that female CEOs are like trying to find a diamond or, you know, they're the most rare thing. They're, they're too rare, unfortunately. And I know that's something you feel passionately I do. about. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> like, there's loads of them. And, and it's actually a great trend that I'm seeing more and more and more, mm. um, particularly in tech, because I think it's that sort of young scene as well, where you you get those opportunities um, or you can start your own company. And it's not like people are looking at you going, why, why are you doing that? Mm. Um, but it, it is something that the society in general could benefit from having more female leaders, um, for more females on boards of so mm. governance um, through to uh, younger managers getting the opportunities to learn how to become um, senior managers and um, grow their own leadership capabilities, but also like having that voice at the table to make those decisions, just in terms of growing a more equal society and a fairer society and, and a society that's more reflective mm. of the world, you know, um, we're but very how proud we, of How do we do that, that, though, in terms of... You just have yeah. to actively think about it, like think about it and, and, and move it forward. Like we have a 50% a female, uh, male, like split on our management team. I'm mm -hmm. very proud of that. I won't change that. Yeah. Um, we're 30% female overall. That's not good enough, you know, but it's, we're getting there and we're shaping that. I'm also um, part of this year, um, this wonderful program called Going for Growth, which is run by a lady called Paul, Paula Fitzsimons. Um, and I think it's backed by Enterprise Ireland and KPMG. And they, for the last, I don't know how many years, I think it's 10 years, but could be more. Um, they've been running this program where uh, volunteer uh, female leaders take new leaders together and have a round table with them and discuss and get them to to work on the business rather than in the business and grow it and, and think about that and that sharing of expertise is really 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 helpful and even the network that it builds mm. you know and in terms of boards of directors etc mm. um, I know we were speaking about maybe what we'd be asking for from a new government um, and, and more diversity on those boards etc but how do you do that in a fair way? Is it quotas? Is it, or is it more of kind of grassroots mentorship like you're talking about there? I'm for boards. Mm. For I mean, female representation at any I think level. as a company, whoever is in charge of building their boards needs to look at their boards and go, who do I need on my board? Mm. Is this board representative of, 
who I wanted to be representative of, like, you know, and really think about it. It's being intentional about things. It's mm. not just kind of going for the easiest options. It's going, okay, let's see how we can build this. And, and that's the thing is that as a founder or, you know, CEO of your own company, you actually have the opportunity and the responsibility to shape the world in the way that you want to see it. Now that can go either way, mm. but like there's, there's an opportunity there to make it more fair, make it better, build better boards, you know, include people, make it more inclusive. I think there's, that's the thing. It's, it's fantastic. It means that you don't have to work with anyone you don't want to. <laughs> it means that you can. Always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like that's the privilege of it. Mm. That's the freedom in it. That's the attractive thing in it too, you know, so you can decide where you want to put your money. And I think, you know, for women deciding where they want to put their money, that's a very big thing to be able to do too. Absolutely. Um, now we're almost out of time, Claire, but I, this being an investor mindset episode, mm. um, it would be remiss of me not to squish in an investment question before we go. You guys got a lot of EU investment in 2017. Um, tell me yeah. about that and why you went down that route as opposed to any other. It's a grant. Okay. So we didn't give any equity away for it. Ah. Um, so there's a, there's a wonderful good reason. program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's a wonderful program. It's the European uh, Innovation Council. Uh, we used to be called the SME instrument, it's called something slightly different now. Um, but it was 1.7 million. Mm. And it was, it because we were piv not pivoting, but we were turning from being a services-led company to a product-first company. And we wanted to do that. And we wanted to, to really get from being, you know, to, to, to see the opportunities that we could scale. We wanted to do that ourselves. We needed the space to do that. And that enabled us to to really lean into it and get to a place where we have options. So we can look at investment further down the line if we want to, but we're structured in a way that that makes sense now. Um, you know, investment doesn't necessarily work for all types of companies and it is a big decision. I think far too often it's lauded as a success metric. It's like, oh, you raised, <laughs> well done. <laughs> but like actually building something of worth and of value that mm. somebody's willing to pay you for and building good opportunities for people to work in like yeah. that's more valuable and even the responsibility and the strings that comes with it it's not like it's free money you know it's not and you really like it's almost like the the, the most important relationship you will have after your co-founder relationship and your early team is like you are bringing somebody that you want their expertise you want their opinions you want them to be able to guide you in a way that you can't mm. so that's really the most important thing because that person will have a seat on your board so they can either and depending on how aligned you are around timelines, around expectations, and that's that's the killer thing is that, is that you really need somebody who's aligned with you, believes in your vision, supports you, and um, and their timelines match with yours. So you're bringing yourself a lot of pain otherwise, I'd imagine. Potentially. Well, that's a great place to leave it, Claire. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank Happy 10th birthday again and you. wishing you 10 more amazing years. Yeah, with your company. thanks very much. Thanks very much. Enjoyed this. Joe presents All In. Together with AIB, backing Irish business. Lots of answers on demand there from the queen of video on demand, Axonistas Claire McHugh. Now I'm back in studio with Brian Caulfield and John O'Sullivan, who are about to tell me what their one to watch is for this week. What has caught your eye, gentlemen, and why, more importantly? Brian, I'll start with you, shall I? So the election has made us increasingly conscious of demographics. I think probably practically everybody in the country knows that by the year 2050, there will only be two people of working age for each pensioner. Mm. 
that's obviously creating a massive financial problem. But there's another problem that we've kind of been ignoring, which is that if you have such an old population, it's going to be increasingly impossible to provide the staff to look after those people in care homes and so on, especially as we see increasing prevalence of dementia and so on. So the answer to that problem... I was wondering where you were going with this. <laughs> ...is inevitably going to be robots. Right. And there's an Irish company, which is a spin-out of Trinity College yes. called Acara. Connor. Connor McGinn. Connor McGinn, yeah, yes. Absolutely. And uh, he has developed a socially assistive mm. robot for use in nursing homes and other types of care facilities. It's very, very early days, but I think that space is going to be huge over the next kind of yeah. 10 to 20 years. Totally agree. And for anyone who doesn't know, Connor's robot was on the front of Time magazine in November. So, uh, not so a time bad achievement. Beat me to it. Yeah. Still relevant. And what about yourself, John? Well, we, we were on the show a couple of, well, I was on the show with you and Mark. Yes, back yes. In Myself November? and yourself always oh, yeah. practically I, I, fall out I, I, over this, this question. question. Yeah, because you don't question. want to give me one. Anna. Well, I, th- well, I kind of think it's unfair. We have this big portfolio and there's all these companies we're looking at. And of course, we're, we're you know, in VC, we don't want to be, look like we're excluding others. Or we Can't have play favourites, absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, if you in line with the portfolio theory. So when we got to this the last time, <clears throat> so the one to watch for me is probably more thematic. Uh, Brian's taken a couple of big changes that are coming mm-hmm. inevitably with demographics. So what does that mean? And the one we talked about last time, which I still uh, permeates my thinking on most things when we look at tech, is what does free look like when it comes to certain markets? You know, what, you know, because if you look back over the last 20 years, what you've seen is mainly through the iterations of deep technologies at a, at a stunning rate is you've seen business models emerge out of that that are disrupting huge markets. Um, and... They're offering either fantastic products or fantastic services for virtually free because the income is made in another way. And you're seeing that played out again and again and again in, in ways that were completely unanticipated um, 20 years ago. When even, even people who would have worked in the original technologies didn't anticipate what use cases uh, would, be, um, uh, would come up. And John, so, would you be heralding the case for free or would you be the type to say, you know, anything that's free comes with... Well, yeah, it, it, well, does, does, does money be made somewhere in the equation? And if you can't also, see the product, you're it, isn't that yeah, what it is? Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's, that's, where, that's where that phrase came from. Mm. It came from exactly that phenomena. So you look now, you can, you just, let's take a market that's, that's around today and you can see how people are beginning to tug at a very established marketplace. So if you take the marketplace for uh, point-of-sale software, um, it's one of the most established marketplaces in software. It's one of the earliest ages to, um, areas to use tech. You can't visit anywhere without actually mm-hmm. paying electronically. And that's been around for a long time. And these are, there's companies of all shapes and sizes doing it. Billion dollar businesses down to local businesses right across the planet. And some of them are highly specialized in the different areas. But increasingly, you have the phenomenon that's VC-backed, understanding how will that market change. So on the one hand, you can look at that market and say it's very established, very mature. It grows in line with the growth of the economy at 2 or 3% a year as it literally grows in line with the number of shops. It's mm-hmm. falling a little bit because of the internet, 
but how, you know, it's on an Irish market. So you, classically VCs would have said, well, we don't go after those large, very established markets too, di too difficult to disrupt. But what they're doing is they're saying, well, actually, no, we're going to give away the software for free, mm -hmm. POS software for free, if we can access the payment strip. And right now, there's a bunch of POS companies very concerned about what that looks like if those entrepreneurs are right. And actually, the VCs give them the room with large capital to, to write fantastic POS software. So this isn't scrappy software. This is beautiful products that really do work in store. But in exchange for that, they're willing to drop their prices to very close to free for access to the payments, the payment side. Now, if you'd have said to people in, in POS software five years ago that was coming, mm. they'd have thought you were barking. But increasingly, you're seeing this generation of companies. And the most recent one backed was backed by Sequoia. They led the B round in it actually last week was Phoenix Payments in California. 50 people beginning to unpick that, that whole idea that you can take these established markets and turn them upside down. And WhatsApp was exactly the same. So Brian, Brian has more experience in this area when it's, it's telecoms background. You've seen a very well-established text marketing industry worth how many billion of free money to telcos? It was free money. It was actually, actually all their profits. If you yeah. actually work the numbers on it, it, yeah. it actually was the profits. And WhatsApp arrived, and actually their business plan was upside down. Most, most people couldn't read it, is that they were going to turn that to zero. So most business plans, when you go to MBA school, are about we're going to grow revenues and we're going to take, you know, going to take market share. There was no, we're going to take it all. We're going to take, and let's, for argument's sake, let's say there was $100 billion a year spent on text payment, texts. We're going to convert that to $5 billion, but we're going to own it. It's not going to be spread across 150 operators globally. They're going, we're going to invert it and winner takes all. Now, those business models only exist and those ideas only exist because actually it's free. And they can get the, the pricing down to virtually zero or someone else can fund it from an advertising stream. That's why free has become really interesting as to how you can use these technologies to intersect actually existing value chains in very powerful ways. Okay, lots of food for thought there. And robo-eldercare. So I'm loving how um, extremely different your ones to watch were this week, which of course is the point and no point in having two the same. So thank you very much for that, gentlemen. That's where we'll leave it for now. And of course, I'll see you. I know I'll see you back on the show very soon anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for another week here on All In Business. Thanks so much to my guests, John O'Sullivan, Brian Caulfield and Claire McHugh for joining me here in studio. Next week, we'll be talking about how to build a powerhouse board with Maura Quinn, CEO of the Institute of Directors and Bobby Healy, founder of Mana Aero. You don't want to miss that. And of course, you don't want to miss us ever. So why not hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast and YouTube. We'll see you next week. Joe presents All In. Together with AIB, backing Irish business.